We come to the next section. Before we get into the second and third missionary journey, there's a little intermittent where we're going to see the Jerusalem Council. Because now things have been changing in Jerusalem. There are more and more Hebraic Jews coming to Christ, bringing their Pharisaic ideas. And they are not as happy with how many Gentiles are coming to the faith and not embracing the kosher laws and the covenant of the Abrahamic covenant as the earlier converts of Christianity in Jerusalem were. There's a tide shifting here. This section records a series of events in chronological order, not a singular event, that deals with the issue of increasing number of Gentiles who were coming to the faith in Jesus. Now that the planned missionary work of the Gentiles had been undertaken, the Jerusalem church, always playing catch-up with Yahweh's plan, they always seem to be a few steps behind of what God is doing, had need of some major rethinking about what the church would be like and how it would go about its missionary work. Thus, they convened a council in 48 AD in order to deal with the issue of the Gentile conversion in a predominantly Jewish-believing group. Here's the big problem. The Jerusalem church is a small minority of the Christian faith right now. At first, they were the majority. This was the heart. And this gained them a lot of privilege and a lot of power. And, well, a lot of privilege and a lot of influence, which then kind of also brings power. And it was very easy to keep thinking the way that you've always been thinking when only your people group are coming to this new sense of faith, which is just really a continuation of the faith that you've already embraced your entire life. But now, as time is going on, Jerusalem is becoming a smaller and smaller and smaller percentage of the, the, the church. And it's going out to the Hellenistic Jews, who are not as hardcore committed to Pharisaic ideas. And then now it's going out to the Gentiles and going out further and further. And they're becoming the minority. And so they're seeing what they think Christian identity looks like beginning to be watered down. And they're, they're feeling threatened. Now this is a legitimate evaluation. As the gospel goes out in any culture, and the more it goes out and out and out, the world and the devil is always going to seek to water it down or pervert it or redirect it. And it's always a beneficial exercise to constantly look at what it's becoming and evaluate, is this becoming anathema? Is this becoming a perversion? Is this becoming something that we should reject? But at the same time, as we evaluate that, we've got to be very careful to separate what is a perversion and a watering down of the gospel that should never happen, lest people never become saved and never become disciple and never truly know God and experience life and salvation, and what is just simply a cultural repackaging, for lack of a better phrase, a different way of doing it in a different kind of a culture that we are not used to because it's way out there and we've never lived there, or it's further into the future and we came from a different past and that's hard that's hard and that's why we have to be in the spirit unfortunately the Jerusalem church is believing the gospel is being watered down because they want to cram it into this 
temporary tutoring, godly, beneficial, spirit of God thing, the law, but not what God intended it to be always dominating Christianity or Judaism forever. And so they want to keep it that way. And they don't see what God is doing here, which means they don't really have a good understanding of their own scriptures. They don't have a good, this is the point that the book of Hebrews is making. Is that if you go back in the scriptures, the scriptures make it very clear that God never intended certain of these mosaic things to be the dominant foundation and shape everything throughout all of human history. It was a tutor. It was temporary until something greater could come along. It was a typology, a picture to help us understand and receive Christ. And they began to see it as the thing, the thing, the entirety and the embodiment of what God is in the gospel is. And so they begin to question. But they're also losing power. They're also losing control. And they feel threatened by these new things. The question at hand was, how was the Jerusalem church going to handle the increasing number of Gentiles who were becoming Christians? This raised the question of what the relationship of the church was to Judaism. Some conservative Jewish Christians argued that Christianity was a party within Judaism. They believed that Christianity, this Gentile Christian idea, was a smaller sect or a smaller subgroup or party within Judaism. And therefore, it was just a kind of a slightly different flavor that should still be plugged in and submitted to the greater idea of what Judaism is, the greater principles. The true believers. They assume that the Gentile Christians need to become Jewish proselytes. That means circumcision and fully embracing the kosher laws, which involved the being well, I just said, and obeying the Mosaic law. This is what Paul was combating in his letter to the great Galatians and Galatians 2.15 and pretty much all throughout the rest of the book. If you want to see Paul angry for a very long time, read Galatians. He is a very heated, very angry Judaism is perverting Christianity kind of a letter. Um, and not just Judaism in its purest form, because that's from God, but Judaizers, who made Judaism what it was never supposed to be. Other Christians, Jews and Gentiles, saw no need for these restrictions. The church was a distinct group separate from Judaism that incorporated both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. This is the great divide. Jerusalem is the heart of the temple. Jerusalem is the heart of the Pharisees. Jerusalem is the one who, they, they, they feel this unique, we're special because we have the temple. And they believe they're right. And so they're going to have a hard time letting go of this. And as the church is expanding, they're going to be feeling threatened by this. And they want to know why the Gentiles, who are becoming Christians, are not obeying God through Abraham and getting circumcised and obeying the kosher laws, the Mosaic law. And for them, these are not real Christians. These are not real converts. And that's what they're fighting. And uh, since Paul has been gone, since the last time we really saw the Jerusalem church was back in chapter 7, really, now Judaizers have changed the political tie. There's a new political party controlling and, and not controlling but greatly influencing the Christian church to the point that James is doing everything in his power to try to, to walk this difficult line 
James is definitely more in line with Paul and Peter, but James is desperately trying to keep it all together. Okay, and he's he's a leader of all these different sects, sects, and in fa- fraction, factions, and God bless him. Witherington says this: It's no exaggeration to say that Acts 15 is the most crucial chapter in the whole book. Marshall is right to note that this chapter is positioned both structurally and theologically at the very heart of the book of Acts. It raises all the key questions of what Luke's relationship to Paul was, what the relationship is between Acts 15 and Galatians 2, and therefore what sort of history Luke is writing. A measure of the importance of this meeting for Luke is shown in that after it, the Jerusalem church virtually disappears from sight in Acts, and Peter does not appear again. In any case, after recording the council, Luke's focus is clearly on the missionary work and points west of council. Luke's focus is clearly Jerusalem from Antioch to Rome. Once they make a decision of what true Christianity has to be, at its heart, the Jerusalem church is going to be left in the dust. And I don't mean like left in the dust that God will not use them and not God won't do anything, but in the greater scheme of what God is doing in the world, it becomes a little place. Most of these people will not accept the the ideas of what true Christianity should be for Jews and Gentiles coming together. And because of that rigidness, they will not be able to be used by God as powerfully as they had been. It's not that God doesn't want to use them, but when you become convinced and rigid in what you think this should be and how God should operate, it becomes hard for God to use you. And that's what we've got to be careful of, that we're not left behind by God because we're unwilling to move and we're too rigid. But we also can't be so compromised and watered down that we become so culturally relevant that we no longer convict or infuse people with life and hope and salvation. That's difficult. What we have here. Not everybody, but a general American Christian kind of view. Sometimes the American church thinks that they are the embodiment and the totality of the church in the world. And it's a little bit of cultural snobbery. And we hear things happening in other worlds and we're like, you can't do it that way because that's not the way we do it. And the real question is, well, you know, we're only 330 million people in America and the 8 billion people in the world. And the amount of Christians here are even far less. In fact, there are fewer Christians in America, even percentage and number-wise, compared to what's in Africa and China and Muslim countries now. And so how dare we say what can and cannot always happen around the world when we're the minority? And that's what we've got to be careful of, this cultural snobbery. And that's what they have going on here. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's powerful. When Paul and Barnabas had a major argument and debate. Now, major argument, major argument and debate does not mean that they were boiling in the face and yelling and screaming and fighting it out. It just means that there was a major argument and debate. It was a big deal. They were very, very, very committed to the idea that it's the gospel and the gospel alone. And it should not be other things. 
And they're going to fight for that because it is what salvation is, is a, is a fight that is worth fighting over. What determines whether you're saved and know Christ and have the Holy Spirit and enter into his presence for all eternity, experience the kingdom of God on earth, that is worth fighting for. You don't have to be angry and mean and bloodthirsty about it, but it, you, you better go head to head on it. And so they were committed. And with them the church appointed Paul and Barnabas and some of the others from among them to go up and meet with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Remember going up, even though they're geographically going down, which are never going down because we're on a round ball. They're going up because Jerusalem is the temple and you're always going up. About the point of disagreement. So they were sent on their way by the church. And as they passed through both Phoenicia, which is in the southernmost part of the coast, and Samaria, they were relating at length the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing great joy to all the brothers. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they were purported, reported, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some from the religious party of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles to order them to observe the law of Moses. So there are Pharisees converting. And they've dedicated themselves in their entire lives to the law. To their credit, you can't blame them. It's very easy to say, and Paul will get really angry in Galatians. And, but that's also because he's been putting up with this for a very, very long time. And he's made all of his arguments, but they won't listen. But in the very, very, very beginning, right, you can't blame them. When you go back and read chapter 17 of Genesis, where God gives the sign for the Abrahamic covenant, he basically says, if you don't cut that part off of your genitalia, I will cut you off from the covenant and you will be outside my blessings and my promises. That's a very powerful way of saying, you better do this. And, and there were no blessings. There was no salvation outside the Abrahamic covenant. And then when we read stories like Tamar, who literally prostitutes herself to her father-in-law Judah in chapter 38 of Genesis because she's so desperate to get into the Abrahamic covenant. And then the Bible and Judah says that she's more righteous than Judah because of that. Now, we talked about this before. God is not saying that prostituting yourself to your father-in-law is righteous. But as a Canaanite, she doesn't know any better. She has no understanding of morality. She has no idea that that's wrong. The only way she can know that is by being with God and being part of the covenant. But the only way she can be part of the covenant is if she's married into the tribe. But what she saw was that this was a different God. And even in all the jacked upness of the, all the brothers, they were still better than the people she came from. And she was willing to do everything in her power and what she thought was okay to become a part of it. And the Bible commends her and puts her in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke. And when you read things like this, you're like, how can you blame these people for thinking that we cannot abandon circumcision? And then when, they, then when Moses refused to circumcise his own sons, when he was going into Egypt to deliver them out of it, God struck him down with a plague that practically killed him. Because he's like, how dare you lead my covenant people when you have you made your own family a part of the covenant? So you can't blame them for thinking that this is important. But what they missed was the prophets who said that this was an outward sign and typology 
for something that would come great one day of an inward heart circumcision of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul and Peter are trying to help them. And as you take them year after year after year through the prophets and help them see that, and they still won't listen, well, then that's a little different. But in the beginning, you can't blame them. This has been a part of it. And God, and then remember too, they went into exile because they didn't follow the Mosaic Covenant. God literally killed 90% of the Jewish people under the Assyrians and then took the rest of them into exile under the Babylonians for over 70 years because they did not follow the Mosaic Law. And when they came back, they said, we don't ever want that to happen again. And they begin to emphasize the law. But unfortunately, they emphasize it so much that the law started becoming more prominent, more important than God and their relationship with him, which then the prophets Zechariah and Malachi came along and condemned them for that. And so you can't blame them. They're like, I don't want to go into exile again. I don't want to be part of it. I don't want any of that. We, we, we've been in exile for 400 years. So you can't blame them. And that's why it's really important when you're disagreeing with people to understand where they're coming from. Hear their story. Find out what their fears are. Find out how they've been raised. Find out all that kind of stuff. And then when you step into that brokenness, it gives you an empathy for them and an understanding and allows you to reason with them in a compassionate way. However, after about five years, if they're still stubborn, it's like, okay. I'm not saying you have the right to mistreat them or anything, but you can. I, I get frustration at that point. I get frustration at that point. Even though you can't blame them for this, this ignores Deuteronomy chapter 16 and 36, where Moses literally says that this is to lead you to a circumcision of the heart, which can only be done through the Spirit. Jeremiah chapter 4 and verses 1 through 4, and Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 25 talks about God bringing into this kind of stuff. Romans 22 verse 28 talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as being the replacement. Acts 4, 10, 44. Okay, so... You, you also have to realize that this stuff makes a great argument as well. And so they begin to debate. Verse 6, But the apostles and the elders met together to deliberate about the matter. And afterward there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach to the Gentiles so that they would hear the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, has testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith. So now why are you putting God to the test by placing on their necks the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of Lord Jesus in the same way that as they are. Now this is the heart of the argument. This summary, most likely this debate has been going on for multiple weeks at different councils and different councils. It's not necessarily the council of Jerusalem, but the multiple councils and gatherings that they came back to over and over and over again. The town hall meetings that just never will come to an end. Okay, And so they're discussing it. So Peter finally stands up and knows his argument. First he says, God came to me and led me to the Gentiles. Then they receive the Holy Spirit that God gave them and cleansed them just as we had received it. And so this is his first point. I was led to them and they received the Holy Spirit. And they received the Holy Spirit without being circumcised. They received the Holy Spirit without meeting the requirements of the law. And they were saved. They had not met the requirements 
and they had not been circumcised, and they had not, and they had been saved. Who are we to say that they need more? If they needed more, God would have said, circumcise and start obeying, and then I'll give you the Holy Spirit. So, who are you to test God? Who are you, in essence, in an indirect kind of way, to say, God, you're wrong. You can't give them the Holy Spirit. They have to be circumcised. And that's the implication. That's where they're testing God. They're questioning God's way of doing things and saying, God can't do this. God doesn't work this way. God has to do it through circumcision. They're putting God in the box. By placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither we or they can handle. Listen, why did we end up in exile? Because we couldn't do it for hundreds of years. We couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it when he had God actually with him. They couldn't do it when they were in Egypt. They couldn't do it when they were in the wilderness. They couldn't do it when they were in Israel. They couldn't do it when they were in exile. They couldn't do it when they came back to Israel. We couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. So why do you want to throw them back under the thing that Jesus saved us from? Why do you want to throw them back under the thing that we can never do and we ended up in exile and got punished and all this kind of stuff and waited for the Messiah and he didn't come as quickly as we thought he would come. Why do you want to do that? Really think about your theology and what you're arguing here. This is Peter's two major points. God led me to them and gave them the Spirit of God without having all this stuff. And two, we couldn't even do it What makes you think that we're going to be able to do it now and that they're able to do it? That's why Jesus came. Who will save me from this wretched man that I am? Romans 7. Romans 8, we have been made alive in the Holy Spirit. That's the argument that Peter is making. On the contrary, we believe that it's through the grace of Christ that we are saved. Now remember, Peter carries great weight as one chosen by Christ to follow him, as one who has received the Holy Spirit in the very beginning, and as one who was literally led by God to go to the Gentiles and witness that and validated by other people. He carries great weight. Verse 12, the whole group kept quiet and listened to Barnabas and Paul while they explained all the miraculous signs and wonders of God had done among the Gentiles through them. So then Paul and Barnabas immediately followed that up with all the things that they had been witnessing. How Gentile after Gentile after Gentile received the Holy Spirit without being circumcised. This isn't a one-time event with Cornelius. It's person after person after person after person. You cannot question the evidence. And they stopped speaking. After they stopped speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, namely all the Gentiles I have called to be my own, says the Lord. He quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, where he anticipates Amos looks for a day where the house of David has collapsed under the judgment and the exile 
of God against them. And that God promises that one day I'll rebuild the tent, but it will also include the Gentiles. It should have included the Gentiles all to begin with, but they got all hoity-toity and elitist. And it's almost like James saying, you're, you're doing it again. We messed up our calling and our mission when we got elitist and said, thank God that I'm not a Gentile or a dog or a woman. And now we're beginning to do it again. Who makes these things known from long ago? Therefore, I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things defiled by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For Moses had those who proclaim him in every town from ancient times because he is read aloud in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, most likely, these criteria are not like James just stood up and was like, hey, I've got an idea. How about boom, 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 okay? Most likely, these are things that have just kept coming up over and over again in the conversation where people are like, yeah, but what about those Gentiles who strangle the animals and those Gentiles that drink blood and the sexual morality and that kind of stuff? There was probably a lot of debate, and this is a summary. And the conclusion is that Gentiles do come from an immoral culture. They come from a really immoral culture. They worship the gods through orgies and sex, and they worship the gods by sacrificing their kids and humans to them. They worship the gods by doing really strange practices and that kind of stuff, and that's clearly not of God. Before the law, during the law, and after the law. God has forbidden these things. And so what are the essentials? So they come up with four criteria. We're not going to put them under things that were temporary. We're not going to put things them under things that are external and merely physical. But there are some things. Now, listen, we could spend all day going through all the things like, yeah, you probably shouldn't steal, and yeah, you shouldn't plagiarize, and yeah, you shouldn't like talk back to your parents, and yeah, you shouldn't slap your sister, like right thing can go on. What they're focusing on are four major things that they have seen continuously the Gentiles do in a religious way of worshiping the gods. It has become a part of their identity. It has become part of the religious thing. And just like Corinthians is arguing, different God, different practices with your God. Different God, different way of worshiping Him. Different God, different way of sacrificing. And so they have found four things that have become central and prominent to the way that the Gentiles worship their gods and say, that ultimately what this comes down to is love God and love your neighbor. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, find, we're, going to, we're going to forbid those things because this is not of God. This is not of God. The first thing they say is they are to avoid anything like rituals and food that were associated with idolatry, which might draw them back into the temples and idolatry that they had come from and thus sin against the exclusivity of their worship of Yahweh. This is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 14-22. Paul is not saying, here's the difficulty. In one sense, Paul is going to argue that, yeah, big whoop, they're sacrificing meat to these, these idols. But it's just meat. The idols aren't real. It's not like the meat like, somehow gets transformed into some evil pagan thing that's going to corrupt you and make you like some demon thing. It's just meat. But in another sense, it's like, yeah, don't go doing that. 
Don't go in the temple. Now, what Paul is dealing with is that really far-removed argument of, you know, when you're out in the market and you're at, like, Kroger and you're buying this meat and you're like, you know what? I don't think Kroger is a bunch of Christians. I don't know how they killed this meat or this cow and how they butchered it up. And maybe they were saying a prayer to Allah while they were doing it or they were saying a prayer to, like, um, whatever, 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 right? Maybe some guy had a, like a little voodoo like rattler in the background or something like that. And so maybe I shouldn't eat this meat because of what that guy was doing in the background. And it's like, no, 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 no. Paul's like, that's not that big of a deal. Okay, but what Paul is saying is this. But you shouldn't be doing the rituals. The way that you come to God and when you do make sacrifices, first of all, Christ has ended all sacrifices. And second, when the Jews sacrificed an animal to God, it was highly regulated by the law to make sure they honor God. And, and in Greek, oh my gosh, you, you can think about it and go as dark as you possibly can in your mind, and they've thought of it, and they're doing it. I don't recommend go as dark as you possibly can in your mind, but I'm just saying, like, there were so many weird sexual things that they did, bloodthirsty, cutting them open kind of things, being baptized in the blood of the animal kind of things, putting goats on like really hot things and making them dance until they died and just burnt up and at the mouth of hell and this kind of stuff, all these weird things. And what they're saying is, no, 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 none of that, none of that. You don't need sacrifices anymore, and you're not going to bring your witchcraft rituals into the church. You're not going to bring your witchcraft rituals into the church. And that's the first point that they're making. Nothing. Nothing that's connected to idolatry. Nothing that's connected to your gods. Nothing that's connected to magic. Nothing that's, for us, it would be the occult and witchcraft and Gnosticism and New Age movements and um, Hinduistic meditative prayer and that kind of stuff. And with what guys, that, that's all about you-centered. It's all about grossness and defilement and morality. You're not allowed to do that. Second, they were to abstain from sexual morality which was a lifestyle commonly accepted and practiced among the Gentiles and the worship of the gods in the temple. It's obvious to us, like, yeah, don't be sexually immoral. That's clearly laid out. The law is laid out before the law is laid out by Jesus, after the law, that kind of stuff. But the problem is the Gentiles didn't see this as immoral. This was the way that they worshiped the gods. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, you're doing that over there and you shouldn't. It was like, this is righteousness, and you worship the gods through sex. And the more public it is, the more holy it is. And what they're saying is, no, 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 no. Sexual morality has been a big part of God's character all throughout the history of what God has been doing in the world. And it's not just they're saying, don't go have sex or have sexual morality. It's they're targeting that because it was part of their worship. It was a part of their worship. Third, they were not to strangle a sacrificed animal which was done in order to transfer the life breath of his spiritual vitality in the idol. Now, what it doesn't mean is that your grandma, back on the farm when you were growing up, and grabbed the chicken and spun it and broke the head off, was like somehow like violating the, the morality of God or something like that and should be like condemned for not being a real Christian. What it means is that when you're being strangled to death, the breath becomes more forced and you're squeezing it out, and it becomes more panic, and you can hear it better, and you can hear the gasping and the wheezing. And so what the Greeks would do is they would take an animal into the temple, and they would build and carve an idol. 
And they believed that when they carved an idol, they would do a ceremony. And they would carve the idol in the image of the god. They would do a ceremony. And they believed the spirit of the god actually entered into the idol. And the idol became alive and, and actually watched them, like a modern-day CTV camera kind of a thing. And so and it became like a security system for them, protected them. They would literally take the animal and they would strangle the animal in a holy worship service so the animal would gas and you could hear the breath coming out. And then they would do this medicine man kind of a thing and push the spirit or the breath into the idol so that it could be blessed. Now, obviously, that's not what really happens. But there were definitely some demons that probably started moving around the idols to make them think that this really had happened and to keep them hooked and um, um, duped as they did this. And so what they're saying is, no, 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 none of that. Okay, when you kill an animal, just slice its throat, bleed it out, butcher it, eat it. Okay, you don't sacrifice animals to your gods, you don't do it with your rituals, and you don't strangle it, and you don't need to do that with any kind of holy relics in the church um, if you want to get them blessed and that kind of stuff. And fourth, they were not to consume blood, which was common to the lifestyle and sacrifice of the Gentiles. This was a violation of the Noah Covenant and was established by Yahweh for all humanity and predated the establishment of Israel through Abraham and the Mosaic Covenant through Moses. So no drinking blood. Drinking blood is a huge part of most cultures throughout history and today in the world. Huge part of it. The, ability, the, the belief that blood will give you vitality. In China, one of, they will actually take a shot glass and fill it with alcohol and kill a serpent and bleed it out into the shot glass and then push the heart into it and drink it and it believes, they believe it will make them fertile. And then we can go on and on and on with tons of cultures where they've done that. And yes, there are vampires. Not vampire in a Hollywood supernatural Bram Stoker's Dracula kind of stuff, but people who do drink blood thinking it's giving them power or extended life or the abilities of the animal or the human that they're drinking of, some kind of a thing. What they're saying is, no, 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 you're not allowed to do these things. And what James and all of them are agreeing to is, these are just vile. This isn't you have to do something to get God's salvation. These are things that are going to seriously separate you from God. They're going to make it difficult for you to enter in communion with God. They're going to make it easier for you to go back into idolatry. And that's what it's really about. What do we believe, as we've been watching you Gentiles throughout our lives, are the things that are the most likely to hinder you from connecting and communion with God once you receive the Holy Spirit and will tempt you and inadvertently lead you back into idolatry that you've left behind? The reality is we need to view you Gentiles as recovering alcoholics, drug addicts, and sex addicts. Food is not addictive in itself, even though you can become addicted to food. Shopping is not addicted in itself, even though you can become addicted to it. But sex, drugs, alcohol, and technology in the palm of your hand are addictive in themselves. And they've actually done lots of studies where they found that that's actually addictive in itself in the same way that sex, drugs, and alcohol are. They're designed that way. And so what they're saying is, these are addictive to self. And so you're recovering. You've taken your paganism, mixed it with all these addictive things in themselves. And if you've ever spent time in um, Sex Anonymous or Alcohol Anonymous or drug recovery programs and that kind of stuff, and 
you know, like, you've got to do everything you can to not be led back in that. Not to be led back into that. And so this is what the church is really coming down to. It's not about regulations. It's not about legalism. It's not about criteria and hoops that you had to jump through. It's about these are the things that are going to lure you back into your idolatry and keep you from connecting to God. The things are specifically from your cultural past. Maybe they would be different. Well, they would be. Well, as America changes, maybe not. Maybe they'd be different in different cultures in different parts of the world. But this is them. And so they agree. Verse 22, Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to send men chosen from among them, Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leaders among the brothers, to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they sent this letter with them. From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the Gentiles, brothers and sisters in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some of you have gone out among us with no orders from us and have confused you, upsetting your minds by what they said, we have unanimously decided to choose men to send to you, along with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have learned that lots of people have left Jerusalem and gone to you and began to make you think that you're not really saved after you accepted the gospel, received the Holy Spirit, because you have not been circumcised and you're not following kosher laws. On behalf of the church, and even though we're not personally guilty of that, we apologize. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas, who will tell you these things themselves in person. For it seemed best to the Holy Spirit and to us, we were led by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the main actor in this book is the Holy Spirit. To us, to not place any greater burden on you than these, these necessary rules, that you abstain from meat that has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood from which has been strangled, and from sexual morality. And if you keep yourselves from doing these things, you will do well and fare well. We don't want to put a burden on you. Christ's burden is light, and his yoke is easy. We don't want to do that to you. So when they had been dis- were dismissed, they went down to Antioch, and after gathering the entire group together, they believe- delivered the letter. When they read it out loud, the people rejoiced at its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with the long speech. And after they had spent some time together, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had, been sent- had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming, along with many others, the word of the Lord. The Gentiles were overjoyed. I mean, for them this made sense. And for them it was no longer a burden. And so everybody was overjoyed and everybody agreed. Longnecker says this, When one considers the situation of the Jerusalem church in A.D. 49, the decision reached by Jerusalem Christians must be considered one of the boldest and most magnanimous in the annuals of the church history. While still attempting to minister exclusively to the nation and the council, refused to impede the progress of that other branch of the Christian mission whose very every success meant further difficulty for them from, from within their own nation. This is a huge moment in Christianity because they had avoided making the gospel more than what it was. They avoided gospel plus works. They avoided 
putting the burden and the yoke back on everybody. So the Pharisees said okay to that? Very good question. So the question that was asked is, were the Christian Pharisees okay with this decision? Obviously, there was a great number of people who agreed this. Most likely there were a great number of Pharisees that agreed. Remember, we talked about this. The Pharisees are never portrayed bad in Luke. Even here, they're not portrayed complete, They're not portrayed bad or as enemies. They just had questions and they were bothered by it. Yes, there seems to be I think Luke would say, yeah, but a whole bunch of people were just like, no. However, as you continue to read Galatians, that comes much later, you realize there were a lot of people who were not okay with this. Does that mean that there was a big group of Pharisees and other people in the Christian church at this part in Jerusalem who were not okay with this and kind of stormed off and Luke didn't record it? Or they were largely with okay with it, and but there were a few that were not, and they kind of went off in a huff and gathered a bigger following. Or that they were all okay with it, but as new Pharisees started coming in and being converted and other people, they weren't there for this big, long debate, and there wasn't like any YouTube videos they could go back to and listen to the, the council and that kind of stuff. And so they didn't understand it, and they don't know, don't know. But it seems like there was a great sense of unanimity here, especially when... James says it himself. But you know it only takes one person to not be okay and, and, and get the right voice and the right ears and you can stir people up and you can even bring people back to your side. I mean, remember even Peter, who is the one who stands up and speaks out, is the one led, sees a bunch of the Judaizer comes in and says, I'm not going to sit with the Gentiles anymore. I'll go over here so I don't look bad because the cool kids just walked in and I don't want to be rejected. And even as an adult, we still fall prey to that. And so, yeah, I mean, tides change. So I don't know exactly, but I do know that it's going to become a big issue later again.